we have an update from Macrofab. Misha and Brendan of Macrofab are doing a webinar on January 30th at 12 p.m. Central Time. The topic is enhancing operational safety through cyber resilient approaches for physically secure PCB designs. Participants will learn about the typical vulnerabilities and electronic hardware and discover advanced design and production strategies prioritizing security, including material and layout considerations. There is also a local event happening at Macrofab HQ. Become a part of the Bright Minds Brighter Future event on February 1st from 11 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Central Time. Join us for a day of innovation and networking. Step into our state-of-the-art factory where the future of electronics manufacturing is being shaped. Please pause the episode and head on over to macfab.com events and register right now before you forget. There is also a link in our show notes if you want to go there as well. We will be right back here waiting for you, our listener when you return. Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofrab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DOI projects, manufacturing, industry news, and continuous integration and deployment for hardware problems. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 415. Circuit Break from Macrofab. This week, we're happy to welcome Director of Customer Engineering at Macrofab, Brendan Duncombe, to the show. Brendan's extensive experience in electrical and systems engineering and his leadership in steering engineering teams from concept to manufacturing makes him an essential voice at Macrofab, and we're happy to have him on the show. Thanks so much for coming on, Brendan. Hey, how's it going, guys? So before we dive into this idea of continuous integration and deployment, let's learn a bit more about you, Brendan, because this is the first time you've been on the podcast. I've been trying to get you on the podcast for, I want to say, almost a year now, so... (laughs) Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Before I was in manufacturing, I did a lot of product development. So I've been kind of hopping around different startups. My initial start out of college was in kind of like contract product development. So like at an engineering shop and did tons of different projects. We did, you know, 3D print supercars, some consumer electronics, big industrial things, kind of just a big mix of different electrical and, you know, embedded systems projects. And then lately I had taken more of a turn into kind of manufacturing and then finally ended up at Macrofab where I'm doing, you know, actual hardcore electrical manufacturing. So what is a director of customer engineering? Because I have not heard that before. Yeah, yeah. It's a title for me, as it turns out. Um, But basically it means that... (laughs) I'm more focused on, you know, like I said, my background is in product development. So a lot of my focus is on the customer's like specific design requirements rather than on like how do I necessarily improve efficiency on SMT lines. It's more about, you know, helping customers get where they need to be when they're going to production. There's a lot of steps that happen between their initial prototypes and then what they want to do when they go to you know mid and high volume production. And a lot of what I do is help them get there. See so removing roadblocks. Yeah, and just answering questions that, you know, it's not that often that you are doing that like V0 all the way to high volume production. There's only so many cycles people get in their career. And so we do it a lot. So just answering the like easy questions of like, hey, you want to do X, Y, and Z. This is very common. Like you should start now instead of waiting until like right before you hit go on production. 
So, Brendan, you want to jump into CICD, which is continuous? I had actually looked this up when you said CICD. I'm like, I have no idea what that is. Oh, I've yeah. never heard of this either. <laughs> oh, yeah. For a bit there, I was doing some software development, like strict software development. And CICD is basically table stakes for software projects these days, right? By default, the frameworks you use, the tools you pick, they they come with the stuff built in, they come with the hooks, like even GitHub now, right? Like GitHub Actions and stuff like that. It's by default designed to get you into doing CICD, automated testing, automated deployment, automated build. All of that is kind of table stakes. And you know, I had a background in electrical engineering. And so for me, it was a little bit weird that embedded development, especially, just was not there at all. There's so many benefits to doing that. And there are the obvious roadblocks, right? There's definitely the problems with, you know, like you have actual hardware in front of you and it's not so easy as just like clicking a button and having everything happen, which like software development, CICD typically is once you set it up. But the benefits, I think, far outweigh that. And so like in the context of embedded development, CICD, I think, is like a fascinating thing to pursue. And there are some, I don't want to say like common issues, but there are definitely prevalent issues when it comes to people deploying firmware that they don't often test, right? And so, especially when it comes to industrial and critical applications where you don't have that many deployments, you know, it's a little bit easier to manually test the surface area of your code as opposed to trying to hit it the way like any random consumer would hit it. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be gained there. And and I think it's just, it's an interesting topic in software development and it's, I think, even more interesting when you apply it to firmware and electrical engineering. So how does like, this continuous integration and development, like how does that actually, you said like hitting more edge cases and that kind of stuff, how does that help you actually do that though? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not like the only way to do that, but when you think about like a typical QA cycle, right, even if you look at it from a pure software development standpoint, there's kind of like your automated unit tests. And then after that, you'll probably have some integration tests. And then a next step over that is like you might do some higher level, like some people do like UI tests where they're, you know, actually like fake hitting inputs. And then you'll have like real QA testers who will, you know, if you've got connected peripherals, they'll connect to them and then try out your software or they'll try it from like a bunch of different browsers and things like that, or they'll try specific use cases. You can see this all the time in like a range of industries, not just like, you know, you can see it in like the gaming industry and not just like, you know, web applications and things like that. And so, but the benefit of doing some of your continuous integration and automated testing is that every build hits those, right? Like when you finally get to a human at the end testing it, right? The, the difference between what typically happens in embedded development and pure software development is you'll see that oftentimes way bigger stretches go between testing and the only testing that they end up getting to is the the QA at the end, right? And often like the most rapid testing they get is them sitting at their desk testing it themselves, right? Like an engineer just like doing their benchtop testing. And so when you do automated testing, you save a lot of time, you can afford to put a lot more of your edge cases in there. You don't have to remember to do them all the time. They automatically happen every time you deploy so you you never like run into this problem where it's now three prototypes later and you know four months later all of a sudden like everything breaks and so you're not actually getting that much useful data. 
it's better to just every time you make a code change, try and push, execute it, you know, stretch all of your features, make sure you're actually hitting everything you do as much as you can, and then pushing that. How is that actually managed, though? Because, the, okay, so it seems like this is some kind of a progressive mentality where, where you take small chunks and push them out and test them immediately, right? Mm-hmm. But that seems like a nightmare to try to manage. So, yeah, I mean, it, it can definitely be a nightmare if you're trying to manually keep track of all these little changes. That's the whole point of kind of CICD and like this automation in general. Is the automation takes care of it, right? You need to set it up. And whenever you push your code, it will build, it will test, it will deploy. Like the whole point is you don't have to touch it, right? Once you set it up, every time you do any little thing, everything gets exercised and you don't have to try and keep track of every little piece, right? That's that's usually where the difficulty comes in is if you're trying to manually track all this stuff, you know, you're trying to like make sure, like, okay, when I go to this revision, I need to test these new features and I need to test the upgrade and the downgrade of the old firmware and then test these different, like, you can, that is where you can run into problems. But when you just write all those tests, every time you push it, that's what happens. It automatically exercises all of that. So, unit tests on software is you basically just run the, te- run the uh, software with inputs and then mm-hmm. you have expected outputs for the test. How does that work for hardware though? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting approaches for this. There's kind of the what sometimes is referred to as host tests, where you just actually are simulating, like you're running real software unit tests, right? Like if you're, let's say you're programming in C or something, like you you, you know you're using something like CMOC and these and these other things that you can use to actually just do unit tests and simulate it, and so it just runs on your computer. You don't need anything else. Then you can do on-device tests, where like if you need to exercise some of the peripherals or make sure some of your like actual hardware is there, you basically it builds like a a test version of your firmware, and and there's there's frameworks for this that you can use, and it will deploy to your device and then run the test and basically report back if if it was successful or not on each of the the unit tests that you run. You you can also take it a step further, and this is where the like default frameworks start to fall apart and it gets a lot more custom, is when you do like your own integration tests on your hardware or you have like an automated tester, you know, think of a bed of nails or something similar, or like a black box that plugs into your main connector, things like that, that is actually exercising it in conjunction with a piece of test firmware. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really funny to think about it that way. Back when I was working on a lot of pinball stuff, we had kind of the same setup, except that it was like the board was just attached to a basically a pinball machine. And we mm-hmm. would make a code change and immediately it would just go out to and program the machine, basically, and we could test it. Now, we didn't have a automated way of playing the game, but that, that would be like the next step, right? Yeah. No, that, that's a very common first step, right? Most people, and, and like this is why we talk about this, is because sometimes even production, the like end of line test is just plug it into the actual thing and see if that works. Press like a certain set of buttons and make sure those buttons work and then call it good, right? So the first, kind of the first foray into like, at least we do a little bit of kind of this automated deployment is we're hooked up to the actual end product all the time. Like we've got our hardware in the end product and we're just like flashing it constantly or deploying to the device, you know, maybe it's over there or something, and just trying out the actual product, which which is like common because that's a good first step. Most engineers already have that set up, right? Like if you're writing a bunch of code or, you know, like testing things, you've already got your computer hooked up to a device ready to program. Usually 
with all of your debug stuff splayed out over your desk, right? And so this is just, the first step is just like clean that up a little bit, set it to the side and keep it set up all the time so that you can just deploy constantly. I find this to be a little funny because at work, what we're describing here is so opposite of what happens at my day job, mainly because we're designing equipment that takes a long time to build. And with our hardware, we'll design the hardware And as we're getting it built, documents are being written on, here's exactly how I'm going to test them. And and we're not talking about a document that takes an Mm -hmm. afternoon to write. We're talking about a document that might take two weeks of an engineer's time to write this. And it is this multi-page document of, here's how I'm going to validate this. Here's how I'm going to do this. And we go through these massive phases of, I'm in design right now. I'm in document writing. Or once the hardware actually hits, I'm in full test mode. And it's interesting to kind of, in a way, what I'm hearing is there's like a smearing almost of all of those happening kind of continuously mm-hmm. at the same time, as opposed to these siloed actions that I'm used to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's very like agile. Like this is a very agile thing, right? Like try and smear everything together, do these tight iterative loops. I mean, and people give it all sorts of names, right? Like we're blurring a bunch of concepts here. We're talking about like CICD, we're talking about like unit testing. And this is also kind of bleeding into like what is test driven development and like why did that get really popular? When you talk about and test driven development for people who don't know is like you write the test first and and prove that it fails and then write code that makes it pass, right? And that's kind of this like idea of you know, then when you write your code, you already have your test cases done. When you talk about test specs, I think those are fascinating because there's actually there's another concept called like behavior-driven development, which there are some frameworks for too, that you write your test spec like with the behavior of the device and it like auto-generates the test cases, like the code to actually test it. So you kind of write this human readable, like when this happens, this should be the result. And then it runs that through there. But all of that work you put in right at the end to write this whole test spec, you know, which takes two weeks, like that's effectively the English version of the code that you need to write to test everything, right? It's a big bunch of cases of like under these conditions with these inputs, you should get these results. And one of my, the main pieces of advice I give people, like this is like the core of my rant about this, is like you put all this work in at the end. Right at the very last step, you put all this work in, and the only people who ever get to benefit from it really are you when you validate the final prototype or the final, like, you know, go to production model, and your manufacturer when they have some test that runs against that all the time. Right. Whereas the whole time you're building this thing, it would be great to be testing against that, that every time you write a new firmware version, make sure it still passes that. Every time you make a new hardware revision, make sure it still passes that. You have to put in all this work and you don't get the great benefit of it that you can have all the time. Now, let's be clear, there are downsides of this. Is that like It takes a little bit more work up front, so it does stretch the beginning. But overall, it speeds you up at the end. And at the end, you don't have this horrible crunch, which I'm, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm sure you've experienced, where... You have to rush to get the documentation out. You have to rush to build some sort of end of line test for production or like ads, build some like tools that whoever like your QA testers are going to be in order to actually like interact with the thing. So you, you build all this stuff. And again, you just build it right at the end. And it's a mad rush to make sure it's good. And my main, my main like the main topic that I like about CICD like test driven development, like this idea of, you know, kind of smearing it all together is that you get the benefit of all that work 
over the entire part of your, you know, the whole development life cycle. I just kind of foresee, at least with my experience, that I understand the benefits to it, but it seems like it would be pretty difficult to actually sell this in a way because, because mm-hmm. there is that upfront overhead cost and being yeah. able to sell that to the bean counters who are just looking at time and saying, it doesn't look like you're making any progress on this. It, do you, I don't know. Do you have any uh, anything to speak on that? Yeah. No, it is hard to sell. Right. And, and like, sometimes it takes like a a successful cycle of this to prove that it's there. Now, again, it's become really the default in software development. And, and to be clear, they have really good tools for it and they get to kind of sidestep the hard part of hardware, but it still takes a bunch of upfront time. Like, you know, when people are setting up these like big Kubernetes clusters and like their automatic deployment thing, like that doesn't come for free. Like they, they have to build all this automatic deployment infrastructure, like their unit test infrastructure, and they have to pay that price of like, Every time they go to push code, they need a certain amount of of unit test coverage and things like that, right? Like they are paying for this all the time during the development cycle. Now, in the hardware space, you know, you have the same thing. It's a little bit more expensive at times because you have these kind of custom pieces to interface with your hardware. But one of the things I often do, like I'm doing now, is I point to the software development world and say, like, look how nice it is that you see all these applications that don't just like push and crash all the time. It's like big news when someone pushes a bad piece of code and it brings down a huge website, right? And that's because of all of this like live service kind of expectation where everyone is under the same standard of we need to push working code. And in order to do that, we have to use this infrastructure and test all the time to make that happen. That's not necessarily like a here's how you sell it playbook, <laughs> but it is generally the speech that I use to try and convince people to do it. Yeah, like you said, going through one cycle of it and demonstrating it would probably be the best ammunition for that. Yeah, and I mean, like when you guys had Teenage Engineering on, right? This is like another good example. They mentioned their automated test infrastructure that they have, right? They have like this standard for the test equipment they use end of line and for testing their production tools. And so, yeah, like, you know, they saw it once probably, and then they know they're releasing a bunch of products and investing in this kind of infrastructure is super useful. And so, yeah, it's easy once you have it. Also, it's really easy once you build like the base infrastructure for everyone to go and like be like super excited about it, right? And just like, hey, we're going to keep doing this for everything we do now. But it take that first hurdle can be difficult. But, you know, again, like when you're talking about this investment, it doesn't have to be like one product line, right? Once you get your infrastructure up and running and, and you make a habit of this, your teams are ready to do this, you know, for other product lines that you build as well. Yeah, I, I think with the teenage engineering guys, they were mentioning, you know, developing their own test equipment and things, especially for like testing the 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 force feedback on buttons and something like that is not an overnight task. That's that's a huge ordeal. So you sure once once you have it there, it's there for the future, but that's a huge investment. Yeah, the problem is those like, you know, if that's a thing you want to control, the secret is you're going to build that thing anyway when you got to production and you wanted to make sure that the fit and finish of your finished product is up to your standards. Right? So like that's why I say like bring it early because a lot of times, you know, when you write these test specs, like if you write them early, you know exactly what you need to write to and the type of test fixtures you need to develop. And again, like if you want to control these things, the you end up doing it end of line of production anyway. And so like if you're going to invest all that time, like maybe just do it earlier so you can take advantage of it and the whole time you're doing this and prototyping different hardware, you can keep putting all of this equipment through the thing that tests button pressure and be like, 
wait, this hardware, not as good. Like this method, not as good, right? We need to get back to what we were doing before. So I focused a little bit on firmware, but this happens with hardware too. Like especially hardware regression testing, I think is a big thing that people really struggle with, right? Like how do I know that this board design is better without making any mistakes than the previous one, right? You have the feature that you actually did to upgrade, right? There was some reason you did a board spin. So you can test that, but then like how much effort does it take to go back through and test all of the other features that you'd already built in? And because that takes a lot of time when you're doing it manually and it's hard to keep track of, the result is, is people try and make less prototypes, right? They try and make less revisions because, you know, they're like, oh, well, we already know that this is like validated hardware. If we need to, you know, change a little thing, like now we have to revalidate the whole hardware. How many times have you heard that anywhere, right? Like this is validated hardware. If we change something, we have to revalidate it. So that test fixture that you were going to build end of line to test all your boards and flash your firmware and do your serialization, if you do that earlier in the cycle, you know, I'm not saying there'll be no overhead to your test fixtures when you switch revisions, right? Like your test points may move around or the board size may change. But generally, if you've got all that hardware sitting there, every time you do a new revision, your regression test is put it back in the fixture and run it, right? And make sure that all of those variables we set are the same. And it's not too big of a of a lift too to have to switch. Let's say you have like a a your tester and stuff, but you really would just have to change the ICT part, the the pogo pin carriers. And that's yeah. not a big lift in terms of if you have to make that change. No, and if you get really slick with it, you can like auto build that, right? You have CAD that says where your test points are. You can, you know, kind of auto generate all the like laser cut pieces that you need to do or CNC pieces. You know, you can generate all those design files and kind of hit print at the same time if you want. Yeah. You can tell I've been like practicing this speech about like, hey, this is a thing I try and sell all the time because before when I was in product development, it was useful, but now what I see a lot is people get to us in manufacturing and they're like, okay, great, we're here, we've got something validated, how do we test it end of line? Or like, how should we do our serialization? And you know, the answer is like, hey, I want you to invest in all this infrastructure. And you know, trying to get the return on investment on that is like, well, do it earlier and you'll have a lot more return on investment for it during your development. Yeah, I was I was about to say, <laughs> coming to your contract manufacturer and asking them how to test your product, it, you're way too late <laughs> if, if if that's when you're asking oh, that question. It's so common, especially in the startup space. I'm not I'm not like trying to like paint with a broad brush on all startups here, but you know, you you oftentimes you're so focused on getting these validated prototypes and you know right product market fit and hardware in your beta tester group and like really showing that like your idea can be there that at the end of it you know you've gotten some rough pricing just to validate your your cost and then you go to you select a contract manufacturer and you're like okay great now hit print and build me 10,000 of these and you maybe got some good DFM feedback along the way which is like a huge step but there's all of these little details that a lot of people forget, especially if you haven't been through it before, or even if you've been through it, if your organization hasn't been through it for before or not in this product category of like, you know, all of a sudden you're doing a connected device. Okay, well, like, how do we get keys to it? And like, should it connect before, like, to the, should we connect it to Wi Fi before we ship it out? Or, or should we connect it to cellular before we ship it out? And like, what do we do with the batteries? You know, every time we've tested it, we just put the battery in, we ship it to people. 
But like, what if it sits on a shelf for three months? You know, there's all of these like little details that come up when you get into manufacturing. You know, even down to like, like how am I going to get the number that's in my chip for my serial number onto the outside of the box so that I can skip, right? There's just, you know, organizations who practice this a lot, right? They're like, yeah, this is part of our thing. That's stage six, right? We do that as part of the checklist. But organizations who don't do this a lot are in a different product category. Like, you know, they were doing analog stuff before and now they've got things that, you know, connect to the cloud. It's easy, you know, to not think of this until someone pushes back about like, what do you want me to do for this, right? How do you want me to validate your radio? Things like that. Yeah, I could say having worked at contract manufacturers, it's always refreshing when a client approaches you and says, hey, I have XYZ tester already done and here's my test suite. How do I integrate it into your process? As opposed to, I need to test my thing. How do I do it? Mm-hmm. And and the other response is like, you have stuff that can test this, right? <laughs> right, right. You know, like like you, you guys have a default thing that you use, so you're just gonna you're gonna put it in there and test That's it. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When they expect well, well, when they know that you know how their product works. That's my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes your contract yep. manufacturer knows your product better than you do. <laughs> there is a couple at Macrofab that yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially if you're developing this stuff, right? Like if you're the one, like, you know, let's say you really are asking a lot of your contract manufacturer and they're developing the test set for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, knowing the ins and outs of products is definitely when you're writing all of the test cases and understanding the behavior of that. Like that, that gives you a pretty good map of, of what a product is like, especially when you see things like, you know, you see this all the time. When you go to a manufacturer who's been making a product for a long time, like they'll see an error on like a test result thing and like they immediately know, like, oh, I need to do this, this, and this, right? Because they just have this experience with your product that, you know, sometimes you don't get to see unless you, you know, visit the factory regularly or, or check it out because they just get in the groove of they're trying to push out product and, you know, they know your they know they know how to fix it when it goes wrong or or things to look for. And so yeah, they definitely get to know it really well. So what would be the ideal hardware development cycle then? Mm. Yeah, great question. I think it depends a little bit on the type of products you have. But generally, I like to have the, you know, my ideal is you have your hardware and your and kind of your bed of nails or whatever your simulator is, right? Like kind of your hardware in the loop situation, whatever that is, you build that early. And you build your test set for that early, right? You have that set up through your whole product development lifecycle. Like that, that's key because then when you get to the end, it's all easy. You just take that thing, you take it to your contract manufacturer, you strip out some of the tests because it's way too exhaustive and you don't need all that in your cycle time. And then then you go there. And on the firmware side, you are taking advantage of that same exact hardware setup to develop your firmware, right? Your firmware has unit tests, your firmware has integration tests, your firmware gets flashed into your big hardware in the loop setup, and it gets exercised too. So that's definitely like in an ideal world where money and time are no object, right? Like this is the type of thing you would do. Is it realistic for every project? Probably not, right? But it can be. Uh, it can be kind of the ideal of what you want to do. Yeah, because I'm imagining this is super would be super useful for when you kind of hand off the board design, so to speak, to like a firmware developer and they program it, but they go and they have to hand it like let's say back to you to make sure it's working right. 
you know, like if the motor driver is outputting yeah. the sine wave correctly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, if they just had a fixture that had the board in it that was hooked up to a, an oscilloscope that you would, it would just automatically tell you if it, the sine wave was right or not. And so they could just keep tweaking their code to make that wave work or work better. Yeah. If you've ever worked with a connected product, you've probably built that thing, right? Especially like if you have like a big software development team. If it's like a connected app or like a web application that connects to a device, like the first thing that'll start happening is all of a sudden, you know, the pure software developers are like, I need, I need hardware to test with. I need something to test my code against, right? And like you end up building these little like black box simulators or some things that you can like flip some switches on to put it in different modes. You end up building that thing. But, you know, the real difference maker is you build that thing with intention versus you build that thing at the last minute to just meet some requirements that the software development team is looking for. Like, oh, I need to test these two cases. But if you build that thing to be like extensible, you know, you have a huge advantage when it comes to like trying to find weird edge cases in your code or, or moving faster on additional like hardware and software iterations. Well, and one other thing that I know seems obvious, but in practice usually gets missed, build two of them, at least two. Don't just build one mm-hmm. and that be the one that you send to your contract manufacturer. You want to have one on your desk too, yes. right? So that when they say there's an issue with it, you can like try and reproduce it. There's also this idea of, in Agile, there's kind of this idea of like, if it hurts to do it, you know, you need to be like, keep doing it until it's not as painful, right? Like, if you have a process that like you dread doing, like over there updates or something like that, you need to like get good at that until it doesn't hurt and you're not afraid of it, right? Like, this is part of your tool, you know, your tool belt now. And so, this same idea, like, if you only build one of those testers or simulators or whatever you want to call it, whatever this fixture is, if you only build one of those, you know, like if anyone ever asks you for a second one or to make updates to it, like that's going to hurt. You need to get, you know, you have to practice at that and make that a muscle that you can exercise at any time. Well, and a little bit further, build two, document them and build them the same. Don't make mods to one of them. Don't or or if you do have to make mods, make them at the same time to both of them and document what you just like I said, this sounds obvious, mm-hmm. but I'm sure all of us have been in the situation where we're like, oh, I'll just do this real quick. And then six months down the road, what the hell did I do? You know, and there's one other pitfall that I've run into as well. It's at the beginning, dreaming up this amazing automated test rig that does everything and exercises every little piece of your product and, and is just magical. And it ends up that, if you really look at it, the test rig becomes more of the design project than the product itself. And you can easily paint yourself into a corner with that. So being realistic with what you actually need to test and what that tester needs to do, I think is critical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you want it to, you don't want to invest more in your tester than you do in your product, right? There's a fine balance there. Yeah, I've definitely been down that road where tester ended up actually taking longer to develop than the actual hardware did. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I guess it depends on your use case, though, because if you're designing a lot of products, like, let's go back to Teenage Engineering for the example. A lot of their products are kind of the same form factor. They have analog inputs, analog outputs, and they press a lot of buttons. So designing (laughs) something... That's all they are. That's all... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Designing a tester that can just handle that really well is probably, you know, 
worth their effort to do. Oh yeah, definitely. Like especially in the same product category, you, you definitely can run into problems where like you have like complementary products that are like across product categories and your testers just don't apply at all. That can definitely make it more difficult to want to build up this infrastructure when you can't really spread it across your product portfolio. But yeah, I mean, there's just, like I said, in general, my recommendation is, you know, we talked about like this big end goal of all of this, right? There's a lot to be gained from just like a little bit of this, right? I will settle for people just, hey, we use unit tests in our firmware now. Like that's a really big win, right? Like we should start little steps, get good at the little things. You don't have to go swinging for the fences, build all this stuff. It's great to get there, but a little bit of this will will give big rewards. I think one thing is to also look at, let's say microcontrollers, for example, is look at, if you're picking your next microcontroller, maybe look at companies that have built-in ability to do unit tests, like simulation we were talking about earlier, being able to run your code in your IDE yeah. and simulate what the inputs and outputs of the chip should be. So like you can, let's say, simulate the I2C bus. So you can be like, oh, it actually outputs the addresses correctly and does all that stuff. DMAs, that kind of Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and not just that, but like when you look at what you're going to run for your firmware, right? If you're going to do like an RTOS or something or any other framework, it's not necessarily an RTOS, but if you're going to pick a framework, maybe look for something that already has like a unit testing structure built in or some CICD hooks already built in, you know, like tool chains that can like run in a Docker container, things like that. It can make your life a lot easier if you want to go down that route. I could see a lot of hardware not being very compatible with this system. However, perhaps there's a kind of a a compromise. Give your firmware guys dev boards. And as you're doing the electrical engineering hardware design, they can be doing all of these unit tests on a dev board level, such that a lot of the things are proven by the time that actual hardware hits their bench. And then you can go into the further, the, the deeper level stuff of the actual hardware testing. I think there's a lot to be had with parallel work there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you want to be doing stuff on dev kits really early anyway. I, I completely agree with that. You should have a lot of dev kits. You should have a lot of dev kits hooked up to breadboards, right? You know, when you're trying to pick out what you need to do. Definitely agree. Firmware development should happen there. A lot of times, you know, we were talking about this like on device test versus a host test, right? A lot of times that is a dev kit. Right. If you don't need any like external peripherals from the microcontroller itself, like you just need the peripherals in the microcontroller, DevKit's perfect for that. Right. Like, absolutely. That should be your like first stop of like, hey, we just part of our CICDs, we have like a computer over here that when it sees a new thing, it runs it on the dev kit and like, you know, runs the test from around the dev kit and makes sure that it's still good. Make sure that heartbeat LED still blinks. <laughs> yep. Or, or, you know, like your watchdog trimer trips, things like that, right? Just like all the basic stuff that you want to make sure doesn't break. It, it can also help you do things like, you know, you want to test counter rollovers, things like that. Like all of that stuff you can do. You can actually turn the hardware on and like initialize it really close to the end of the counter and like see what happens and test that all the time, right? Yeah, I see a lot of value in that because I, there's certainly the situation where, you know, an electrical engineer has designed their entire board or a hardware engineer, sorry, and they're ready to pass it off to their firmware guy and they're ready to just get going with, let me get a probe on here and let's start, you know, changing outputs and doing all these things. And if you haven't already had all that bring up code and you haven't had time to test things like the watchdog timer and whatnot, there's a lot of downtime while firmware gets spun up with all of that other testing. 
Yeah, and I typically see the dev kit start as the first step anyway, because a lot of times you wanna, like when you're trying to select a microcontroller, you wanna look at what you actually need. You know, like you're running, you know, if you're running an RTOS or something, maybe you're testing out a couple different versions of microcontroller, like which peripherals really work for you. So sometimes I think that, you know, at that early stage, yeah, like you're doing that bring up code and test code just to help you make your selection sometimes. One of the most important things with that is, let's say you're running a lot of external peripherals, is you don't even need the external peripherals a lot of times, but to make sure that your microcontroller has enough interrupts, has all this, all the architecture that you actually need built in to do what it needs to do. Yeah. Older Arduino platforms are really bad at that because they don't have like a DMA setup, um, like an old Arduino Mega, basically. And you run into this a lot where you want to start running, like, let's say, a lot of LEDs, addressable LEDs. And you're just like, well, when it's putting out LED data, it can't use the serial bus. And it's fine when you like, you, yeah, that's, that's a huge yeah, that's, one, right? I, that's like, like all the time case. you run into it. It's like, it has the peripherals, but like, you didn't realize when you're reading the data sheet that it's like, if this peripheral's on, you don't get all these other yeah. ones, right? That happens yeah. all yeah. the time. And so writing all that, all that code and then being able to test it and see if, hey, can we actually run what this product needs to do at the uh, controller level is uh, super, super important. So like, that's kind of like taking your mm -hmm. specification doc and writing a test doc on top of that. And then yeah. writing the code to make that work. Yeah. Exactly what we are just talking about, right? Like, do your test stuff first. You know what you need. And all that code that was testing out those peripherals, right? Like, hey, that is now the basis for your test firmware where you need to make sure, like, say you got, you know, like a CAN bus or something, you want to make sure it's good. Like, you just run arbitrary data through it at, like, max speed, you know, as part of your end-of-line tests or your regression testing just to make sure that when you do new hardware revisions, it's like that. You know, like, again, a lot of these things you can, like, build off of each other. And so keeping that around and also treating that early code as a first-class citizen, right? Like, that. It doesn't do the like, hey, I just got it in one giant file problem. You know, you actually put it into GitHub and you're you're actually, you know, tracking it because you're gonna use it later. Yeah. If that one giant file line hits too close to home for you out there, like that's a good place to start, right? That's a it's hard to do unit testing when it's in one big file. It's hard to do a lot of this stuff when it's not broken out there. So that also can be like a great place to get started. Lots of organization. Yeah. Same thing with like setting up the automation for like, let's say you have like API keys and you're using GitHub. A lot of times you don't want to put those keys in there, especially if multiple people are using the GitHub or it's an open source project. Setting up the automation to make sure you don't accidentally publish those keys. That's a very good step. Yeah, or like the environment variables that you need to set up to grab them locally, right? Like actually making the config file that it grabs those from as part of like a programmable thing. That is, yeah, all of that is great stuff to practice at. And helps you later too, because now you have a great way of like, you know how to add keys, right? That, that, that you need to do that in manufacturing. You got to give each of your devices a new key. So how do you do that? You've been practicing. So if we have uh, nothing else to talk about with CICD, you know, I kind of want to talk about future stuff you're working on at Brent, uh, Brendan at Macrofab. Yeah, future stuff. There's a lot of interesting future projects that we're doing for sure. You know, in the thread of this kind of automation thing, I think there's a lot of automation stuff that I'm interested in looking at here at Macrofab. You know, the same way that we, you know, there, there's also this, you know, we just talked about investing in these tool chains or like these fixtures that you use. Well, 
we have maybe more reason to have standard fixtures because we do a lot more testing than any given customer does. So like what kind of tools can we build to help designing or making test fixtures for our customers easier, right? Because like, you know, we may only build, you may only build one product with us, but we build 10 that can maybe leverage a similar set of tests. And so how do we kind of do that is a really interesting challenge. Hmm. I could totally see Macrofab taking that to the next level and saying, how do we leverage that as the product? In other words, how do you put that on the website as something that someone can manage and input? Yeah, I don't know if we're quite at like make it part of the product, but we're definitely in the early stages of like, hey, I don't want to repeat this work a million times. Like, let's actually get something as a basis that we can use. I'm, I'm sure there is some future in that, but that would be pretty cool if I can manage my yeah, bill of materials, absolutely. I can manage my product, I can manage box build, and I can manage all the testing, including fixturing, all in one location. Now, I understand that's asking for a ton there. <laughs> that is That is gigantic. Yeah, thinking about your fixturing that way is great, right? Like, is your product really just your E-bomb, your M-bomb, like your assembly all together and your PCB? Or is it like all the stuff that also goes into building your product, right? People see it all the time with like, hey, we've got the versions we need for like our PCBA and our assemblies, but like less about like, hey, what's the version of the test we're running, right? And a lot comes into that when you start thinking about it that way. You start thinking like, hey, I maybe now when I record my test results, I need to say what version of my test firmware am I running? And what version of my test hardware am I running on? And you know, which of the versions of the stuff that I'm building are compatible with each other? And can I roll that over as I make upgrades to my product? Are they still compatible? And so if you think of like kind of your whole product is not just you know, your big sort of tree of all of your assemblies and your bombs and the version sub-assemblies. But if you also start thinking about how that is the case for the fixtures you use, the tooling that you use to build those products, right? And I don't even mean just like the ones that you see, but you think about the ones that you use on the manufacturing floor too. You've got like your carriers and your stencils and you've got, you know, when you're doing product assembly, you've got all of these like fixtures that help put it together, right? Like, Understanding and keeping that in your mind, like, hey, we'll be able to reuse those, or are we going to incur costs when we make these changes? Like, you know, it is the collection of not just the thing, but also all the stuff to build the thing, right? And so, keeping it kind of that way, if you, if you kind of like treat some of your fixturing and tooling and your production as part of your product, it makes it easier to justify some of this infrastructure build that you need to do. Because the reality is, like, it is part of your product, right? You know, a lot of things struggle when you get to production, right? Like it's not uncommon to just get stuck. Like you can you can build five thousand, and when you have everyone like hand touching and stuff, when you really got to like speed up and scale, you you can run into these things, right? And so, it absolutely is part of your product. It can be difficult to, once again, to sell that though, mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. the the overhead cost of design time for something that doesn't appear to directly impact profit is, um, I don't know, like uh, just being very directed with this from the beginning makes the most sense. Like we've been saying the entire time, just so that you don't get to the very end of the project and then have to justify all of these costs. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, this is a reason why this is kind of like a future product where like 
thing I'm working on at Macrofab is like, again, it's a lot easier to justify this stuff if, you know, like the base infrastructure of like, you know, I mean, it's always easy to like generate ICT fixtures and things like that. But like the base of like, hey, we have a pretty good platform to build the functional stuff off of as well. Like it's a lot easier to justify that across like way more products than just like what one company may necessarily bring to the table. So Brendan, thank you so much for joining us today on the, uh, or I guess tonight, we record at night. I would say day, but it is night. Join us tonight on the podcast. Brendan, where can people hit you up and ask you questions about hardware as, you know, continually developing? It may be kind of, I don't know, basic, but I respond to people on LinkedIn. Like, that's a good spot to find me. You'll see me around on some of the the Macrofab stuff. And if you ever come to, like, one of our meetups or events, please don't hesitate to reach out and ask questions. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Brendan. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was a blast. So please visit MacFab.com. We'll also have links to Brendan's LinkedIn and that kind of stuff in the show notes. And uh, thank you for listening to Circuit Break. We were your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you. Yes, you are listener for downloading our podcast. Tell your friends and coworkers about Circuit Break, the podcast from MacroFab. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic you want us to discuss, let us know. Or in the community. Our community is at forum.macfab.com, where you can find personal projects, discussions about the podcast, engineering topics, and maybe Brandon will be there. So yeah, forum.macfab. Maybe. Maybe.